0: We just started first Timothy here on Wednesday evenings, and uh, tonight we are going to uh, take a look at verse eighteen to 20 of first Timothy chapter one so first Timothy chapter one verse eighteen to twenty by way of introduction, Timothy remember was a timid guy and uh, he was struggling because part of what he was supposed to do as a pastor was to confront people that were teaching incorrect doctrine. And Ephesus was a large city, and it was a college town, and there were people who came to Christ with different ideas. You know, we we wonder what it would be like if we went into a Muslim country and led some Muslims to the Lord and and then how they're looking at Christianity. It might take them a while, huh, to, to figure out, no, 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 it's not similar this way. It is sort of similar to the Muslim religion this way, but it's not similar that way. Um, you know, through the years, I've had the opportunity to see a number of people come out of the Jehovah Witness group, and um, it is so hard for them, because many of the same songs that we sing, they sing in the Jehovah Witness church. Uh, some of the hymns and so forth and and of course the the sanctuary looked the same and often people would use analogies that the same they used in the Jehovah's Witness Church and and it was just a hard Transition to figure out how to get out of the mindset uh, and that spirit that atmosphere of a cult uh, and get those brainwashed ideas that maybe you've had from your childhood to now come over to the true, pure doctrine of Christianity. And so in Timothy's situation, he probably had people come in out of multiple different religions and carrying with them some of the baggage, some of the weird ideas. For sure we knew the Jews that were there were having a really hard time with the gospel of grace. And the Jews are saying, well, we're using the same Bible. And here's how I was taught the scriptures. Well, you were taught wrong in your synagogue. Um, and it would, it would have been a, a wrestling match for Timothy. You know, it wouldn't have been just a, a pure, easy thing for him to teach. He, he realized as he taught, very simply, he knew that people were struggling um, in various aspects. And he was a young man, so he didn't have the same clout that brilliant Apostle Paul had. And so, you know, here's Timothy, younger than some of these guys, and maybe didn't know the Scriptures as well as some of these Jews knew the Scriptures. And and so it was uh, not an easy thing for him to pastor in this Ephesus church. And Paul, in essence, tells him, I know it's a struggle, I know you're timid, but you're going to have to get past that and do the work of the ministry, which means confronting these guys. And, and in reality, I, I think we're all sort of like that. Remember in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, Paul said, Look at our calling, brother. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. Often we find ourselves outmatched, don't we, with the world around us, the intellectuals out there, no matter how foolish what they're saying is, we, we try to combat them, and, and we end up not having as strong as argument. Even though we know we're right, we just didn't out-argue them. Um, sometimes you can get some debaters, and they can take really crazy positions on things, but yet because they're such good debaters, they can uh, win the day. And so <laughs> Paul had this same struggle, by the way, you know. Paul wasn't saying, man, I don't know what it's like to be timid. I don't know what it's like not to be brave and strong. But remember in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul said, when I was with you, Corinthians, I was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And Timothy would have saw Paul in that situation. So Timothy himself saw Paul, not like the roaring lion, but like the padding sheep. He saw Paul going into cities to confront the people about the truth of Jesus who had never heard of Jesus. And he saw Paul maybe with an upset stomach or timid or worried or fearful. We have those feelings, just like Timothy did. We all do. But Paul gave. There we go so i gotta get used to preaching outside um spurgeon had a whole chapter in his book on outside outside preaching and uh, he said the first thing that you need is to weigh about 250 pounds so i got that covered but uh the wind blowing your notes away i didn't see that in his book so But he gave Timothy 17 different commands in this book. And in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1, verse 3, remember his first command was remain in Ephesus. Often it's that way, isn't it? We can just picture a different situation. And boy, the grass is so green on the other side of the fence, isn't it? But you discover wherever you go, there you are, and uh, most of your problems are with you. Um, and, and the fact is, is wherever Timothy went to go pastor, he was going to have many, if not most, of all the same problems. So here in verse 18 to 20, he says that you're in a battle and you can't surrender. He's saying you need to finish well because not everybody does. And so in verse 18 here tonight... This charge I commit to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So he once again is giving that same word, command, and a military word, as we saw in verse 3. But this time he's not just telling him as a soldier, he's telling him as a dad. I command you, and then the loving caring words of a father my dear son Timothy so Timothy is here's the command but he also is being communicated the love and he says according to the prophecies previously made concerning you so when Timothy was first converted there was probably some words of prophecy we know that later on at different times and different places when the leaders got together uh, prophets that would come up from Jerusalem and, and others and they would have prayer times that those with the gift of prophecy would prophesy And in 1st Timothy 4.14 Paul tells Timothy do not neglect the gift that was in you which was given to you By prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership So somebody had a word of prophecy. He had a particular gift Maybe it was a word of knowledge or the gift of faith or the gift of healings. We don't know which gift it was. But when they laid hands on them, they, they prophesied this gift and then they asked that God would empower that gift in his life. In Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he said, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So this is a different scenario. Before it was a group of elders that laid hands on him and they had the prophecy. This time it was another time it was just him and Timothy. And Paul laid his hands on him. For God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So what is prophecy? Well, sometimes we see prophecy in the scripture, as we, you might imagine, a future telling of events. But often prophecy is just speaking the written word of God, but in power. So there's the foretelling of God's word, and there's the forthtelling telling of God's word where there's an anointedness and a power in that. But here I think this is referring to a prophecy of what would happen in Timothy's life in the future, and a power that he would have in his ministry in the future. And Paul is telling him to grab a hold of what God has spoken concerning him. We see this throughout the scriptures. You guys might remember Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. God spoke a prophecy to him in a dream. Remember that? And, uh, you know, his brothers would bow down to him. Even his mom and dad would bow down to him. And uh, nobody liked that prophecy but Joseph. Um, But you remember what happened after that? He was sold into slavery. And he was a slave for a number of years. But he kept a good conscience. And he continued to have faith. Even... And as a slave. But then he got accused of being a rapist. It went through the court system and the gavel came down, guilty as charged, into prison with you. And it's one thing going to prison, it's another thing going to prison as a rapist. And as a rapist of an Egyptian woman. As a Jew. That would have been a hard rap to carry with you into prison. But Joseph never lost heart, he never lost faith, he never lost his good conscience because he knew the word of the Lord that one day I'm going to be raised up into a place of authority and that day has not yet come and it's going to come so that burning word of prophecy that he received that kept him having faith and a good conscience we remember Joseph and Mary when they brought little baby Jesus into the temple to be dedicated And there was an old guy, Simeon, who got a word from the Lord years earlier that he's just going to keep getting older and older and older and not die until he himself would see the Messiah. And when he saw a little baby Jesus, he knew God had fulfilled that word. And then Simeon begins to prophesy in Luke 2, verse 34 Simeon said, bless them, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Wow. And that the thoughts and the many hearts may be revealed. And it tells us later that Mary just pondered those words in her heart, hid them in her heart. She knew they were a word of prophecy to, to help her face the fact when her son would die, she would have strength. Boy, Paul, uh, man, he had some prophecies. Remember at his conversion. God spoke to a guy by the name of Ananias and, and said, hey, go lay hands on brother Paul. And he's like, "Who? you're creating, this guy's persecuting the church. And as Ananias laid hands on Paul, we discover there in Acts chapter 9 verse 15, he prophesied. And the Lord spoke to Ananias, saying, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we can see Paul reiterating this story many times in the book of Acts. And that prophecy was deep. And so when Paul, who shipwrecked a total of four times, by the way, each time he shipwrecked, and they're going, Oh, we're going to die out here, Paul's like, I have I had preached the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, but I've not been before any authority or king yet. So I'm not going to drown out here. He knew that he wasn't going to die, and um, eventually he did go through a series of rulers and kings until he was at the top of the rung, standing before Nero himself. And that prophecy helped Paul to have faith even when he was getting beaten to death imprisoned, stoned to death, um, shipwrecked many times, robbed many times, all the horrible things that Satan kept doing to try to discourage him and shut him down, Paul was able to strengthen himself through the prophecy that had been previously given to him. I think of Acapas and in, in, in Acts 18 11, it tells us he was a prophet He lived in Jerusalem, but he would travel outside of Jerusalem. And he had a prophecy there was going to be a famine throughout the whole world. And the Christians got together and built an offering before the famine came to supply the church in Jerusalem with finances to make it through that time of famine. Well, later on in Acts 21, Agabus would be there, but also Philip. Remember Philip from Acts 8, who was translated away? He was, he, and, and he was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and he baptized him and, and then he disappeared and ended up on another road far away walking well that guy Philip ended up getting married and he had four virgin daughters who were all four of them were prophetess and when Paul came into town these gals got him and started tying him up and binding him and they prophesied saying if you go up to Jerusalem so this will happen to you And everybody said, oh, it's a prophecy, don't go. And Paul said, no, you guys are confirming what I already know to be true. God has already prophesied through many things I must suffer before I see the kingdom of heaven and, and this is okay. And so how does prophecy work in the church today? Well, I want to read some scriptures, mainly out of 1 Corinthians 14. Let's read those first five verses there. Paul talking about The the gift of prophecy in the church. He says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but uh, to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Make a note of those three things, because when people give you a quote unquote prophecy, Something I've seen in South America quite a bit. Some guy will come in and prophesy, hey, you and you are supposed to get married. And then they get married and it's just a horrendous thing. I've seen this all over the world. And that's not what it says here. It says the prophecy edifies, it strengthens you. It, it's an exhortation to obedience or to step out in faith or to you know, press forward even though you're being persecuted and for comfort to men. And um, anyway, verse 4, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you all prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets, then the church may receive edification. Skipping down to First Corinthians fourteen twenty-four and 25, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. For thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. So falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So, this is where you're, you're giving a word of the Lord, a prophecy, and a non believer, that prophecy is directly right at him. And he hears that word going, Nobody could know that but God. And the secret of his heart is revealed, and he realizes, Man. This, thing, this stuff is real here. God is really present and uh, active in this church. And, and he becomes a believer in Christ through the gift of prophecy, revealing his heart. And in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14, So let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge, discern. For if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy, but one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So it appears that when the gift of prophecy is working, there's many more prophecies could be given than God wants in a single church service. So he said, look, the the whole church service isn't to be uh, a a prophecy fest, you know. Uh, Two or three at the most. And if there's other words of prophecy, they can speak them after church individually to people. But uh, it's not to be this confusing thing. It should be very organized in how it's presented. And you have one prophecy and then let everybody discern. Is that for me? Is that for the whole congregation? Is, is God revealing something to me through that prophecy? And, and let everybody discern. And, and sometimes we need to discern that that guy is a false prophet. <laughs> you know, uh, the discernment is that's not from the Lord for anybody. That's, again, Satan's no idiot. If you can't beat him, join him. And uh, when you begin to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, well, Satan also works in the gifts of the Spirit demonically. But uh, he can do miracles as well. Well, then, um, I, I can just tell you in my own life that when I had gotten baptized in the Spirit and, and the Lord began to speak to me and prophesy. Um, boy, uh, it it's take me a long time to explain it. But I'll tell you what. God's given me a few prophecies in my life and I have not forgotten them. They're like singed deep into my heart. Some of them have come to pass and some of them are yet to come to pass. But I know like the paragraph of prophecy I got, some did come to pass and some are yet to come to pass that it's a great encouragement because it's like, yeah, I don't know when or where or how God's going to do it, but I do know he's going to complete uh, that work. And just like Mary, I just ponder them my heart going, God, I remember that. And uh, and so here with Timothy, he's going through a hard time and uh, he, he doesn't want to have to fight and and he wants to give up and probably quit the ministry altogether. We see in Second Timothy that one of... The guys with Timothy and Paul, by the name of Demas, it says he just left the ministry altogether and moved back home. And Paul was in great sorrow over that. And another guy, Archippus, he had to write, take heed to the ministry that you fulfill it. But again, there's people that are saying, I'm willing to serve the Lord as long as it doesn't cost me any more than this. And I'm sorry, the Lord doesn't give us that promise. And if you begin to step out in ministry, it will cost you more than you had planned on it costing you. I guarantee it. But to hold on to those prophecies. So I think for Timothy, apparently God had spoken to Timothy through others, through the gift of prophecy and the words were encouraging for Timothy to stay strong in the difficulty that was in front of him. Also, it may have been, a description of Timothy's future ministry. It also may have been a warning against being timid in his work for God. And lastly, whatever it was, God wanted Timothy to draw strength from it and continue in his present difficulty uh, in his ministry. So the prophecies were to give him strength in the moment. If he would remember what God promised he was going to do through Timothy and how God was going to work that. Well, the last part of verse 18 is that you may, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So having this word from God, like Joseph, he's like, I know I'm in slavery, but I know this isn't the end of my life because I'm not going to always be in slavery because God spoke I'm going to be raised up in a place of authority. And then as a prisoner, he's like, I'm not going to die in prison because God prophesied. So in the same way, Timothy had these words of God of, of being used in another place in a different way with greater power. And it hadn't yet happened. And so he's saying, hang on, because God's prophesied that great things are coming. And so by that encouragement, you can fight the good warfare. Joseph as a slave became the number one slave of Potiphar because his attitude was so good because the prophecies that were given to him strengthened him. And then when he was a prisoner, he became the number one prisoner (laughs) because he had a good conscience and he was being honest and he had a godly character and it raised him up. And, of course, we know the story that ultimately Joseph was next to Pharaoh himself and the whole world came to Egypt because of the worldwide famine And God spoke that to him way in advance that continued him through decades of difficulty before that prophecy finally was fulfilled. So in the same way, by this strength and the inner man, you can wage the good warfare. You know, if you begin to minister even in a small way, you're going to quickly realize that there's spiritual warfare going on. I think people that are, have ministered for many years, we're in spiritual battle all the time. We forget if it's even there, you know. It's sort of like we're just pushing through constantly because there's so much demonic uh, str- you know, battle going on, but we just learn to push through. But when somebody begins to become fruitful in their ministry, Satan takes it very personally. he definitely feels like you're messing with his kingdom. He believes he owns the world. He believes he's a God of this age. He believes he's the prince of the power of the air. He believes that he owns everybody and everything and that Los Alamitos is his. And if you want to start ministering to your neighbor in a small way, he takes that personally and saying, there's no way I'm going to allow that to happen. And often people that begin to minister are surprised. They're like, man, I can't believe what happened, and then we have to say, okay, that's spiritual warfare. Oh, that's what that is. I've never really experienced it to that degree before, and it's sort of like, welcome to ministry. You know, often when we would have guys that would want to become home fellowships in the church, they're like, well, do you think I know the Bible well enough? Do you think I can speak well enough? Do you think I can can really lead this group of people? And we're all just laughing, going. In a couple of weeks, not one of those will be your question. The only question you'll it'll be is, can I survive getting the heck beat out of me by the devil? That's the only question you're going to be asking. Because, uh, And it's a good thing. It, when I'm in spiritual warfare getting beat up by the devil, I feel so good. Because I know I'm on the right path. When I'm not getting beat up by the devil, I'm like, God, forgive me. I repent. Where am I supposed to go? I, I don't even know how to... Walk in obedience without sort of the, the enemy beating up on my helping me confirm. Yeah, I'm in the right location, doing the right thing because Satan hates it. And it says here it's a good warfare. You know, all earthly warfare is earthly. Remember years ago, they really pressed Billy Graham to become a politician. And, and he was like, why would I want to do a lesser job? What I do is eternal. You want me to go pass some laws for some streets and, and you know, build some buildings and, 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 you know, are you kidding me? What I do affects people for eternity. I'm, I would never turn that in. So in essence, uh, earthly warfare rather than a good, lasting, eternal warfare. So when you're getting beat up, just remember, you know what? I'm affecting this person I'm witnessing to or this person that I'm loving on or these people that I'm serving for eternity. It's a good warfare. Get beat up and bruised, it's okay. It's eternal. It's a wonderful. So fight that good fight. In the second letter to Timothy, Paul writes this. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Timothy, you forgot you are a soldier. Sometimes we forget that. You know, we we cruise in and, and, and we forget that we're in a battle. Satan sure didn't forget. He's got the spears and the swords and the arrows and... He's got a club, and he's banging you over the head, and and you're you're like going, oh, wow, we're in a battle, you know? It's like, don't forget that. Get your sword. Get your helmet. We're we're in a battle. And and Timothy, yes, you're you're struggling at Ephesus as a pastor. Fight. Fight the good fight. You're a soldier. You need to be one. Paul writes of himself. That's the way he saw his ministry. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 through 8, Paul says at the very end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And so he he had to approach the job that Paul had left for him in Ephesus, as a soldier approaching battle. Timothy had a job in front of him, and it was going to be a battle. The ministry that Timothy had in front of him at Ephesus, it wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be comfortable. It wasn't going to be carefree. As much as Timothy wanted a pastorate like that, God did not offer him a ministry like that. This gave Timothy still another reason to man at Ephesus. Just like a soldier can't leave the battle, can he? That's a death sentence, isn't it? Timothy, you're a soldier in the battle. You can't leave or you are abandoning your post. You're deserting your post as a deserter you must stay there because yes, there's a battle and you're a soldier and I know you're tired of the battle. It's wearing you down but you can't abandon your post. Well, in verse 19, he goes on to say, having faith and a good conscience with some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. There's some people that just lost the faith. They, they again, I, I see people that, that, Want to believe that God has promised things that He's never promised. Or they want to create a Christianity that God never created. Maybe you've been around the health and wealth group. They want to believe that every sickness will be healed and that everybody, if you really have faith, will be multimillionaires. They believe God's promised this. And we, we called them in Hungary. When, when Hungary was behind the Iron Curtain, we were the, some of the first Christians to go in as soon as the Iron Curtain came down. We were there literally within a week of when the Iron Curtain came down into Hungary and going into Hungary, preaching the gospel in all the cities. And it was, oh my gosh, it, it was the most amazing experience. I mean, 99 out of 100 people you shared the Lord with would radically give their lives to the Lord. And and people would literally just grab you and say, what are you doing here? We're here to tell people about Jesus. Tell me, but let me go get all my family first. It was just like, have I died and gone to heaven? This is like everybody, you know, it's not like one person going, ah, get your Christianity out of here. Nobody did that. They're like, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. And it was like, oh, it was just such a wonderful season. But the health and wealth groups came in. And they told everybody, you know, the, tr- the reason America is so wealthy it's because we're Christians. So if you guys want to be wealthy like us and be millionaires, be a Christian. And so everybody was coming with that motive. And they were teaching this perverted gospel with a perverted Jesus, giving them expectations that if you twist the scripture in a bizarre way, you can find it in there. But it's just not true. Proverb makes it clear God makes the rich, God makes the poor. And he says we're all going to be rich in heaven, but on earth it, it, it's it's not doled out by righteousness. But there's some of these people that the simplicity of Christ and who he is and what he's done, it wasn't enough for them. And uh, they have now traded in a faith in walking with Jesus, going back to their own religion, going back to their living Life by their own wits. And Timothy, you need to keep the faith. How would Timothy keep his faith? One, by fighting the good fight. In Second Timothy 4:7 again, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Also, he he keeps the faith by the word. In Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And also to keep the faith by prayer. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit Satan's always trying to undo that he's trying to convince you you want peace put your armor down and I'll leave you alone just don't talk about Jesus and don't go to church don't read your Bible don't be fruitful you you want to you you want to cease fire great cease fire means you don't walk in obedience anymore right Satan will make that deal with you if you want to make it there's some people going okay I won't talk about Jesus I won't read the Bible I'll, I'll just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone Satan, Satan will make that deal every day of the week. But we can't. We've got to keep fighting the fight. And Satan says, you, you take another step, I'm going to pound you ten times harder. Take another step, I'm going to pound you a hundred times harder. I'm going to attack your family. I'm going to attack your business. I'm going to attack your health. And, and we have to just say, do your worst. I, I can't turn away from Christ who loved me so much and died and rose again for me. And the same in the Word. If people, again, they've been taught a skewed way of looking at scriptures and it's not coming to pass the way they want it to come to pass. And they just become disinterested in the Bible. It's not something that is a light to them anymore and a light to their path anymore. And then prayer. There's people that pray all these prayers that... Uh, could be in God's will, maybe not in God's will, but they've been told, you pray it, you believe it, it's going to happen. And and it seems like God's not answering any of your prayers. You ever go through those seasons? I mean, you go through those seasons, it's, it's like even your thoughts God answers. It's like, hold it, I never even prayed that. Yeah, but it was a meditation in your heart, I took it as a prayer. And then you go through those seasons where it's like you, you feel like heavens have been shut off to you and just you're knocking and nobody's home and God challenges our faith in those times doesn't he so hang in there keeping the faith and a good conscience I'll tell you what if you try to do a teaching on conscience it would take probably 10 hours there is a lot in the bible on the conscience but shortly the the conscience is a muscle God gives us It, 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 it has partly we're made in the image of God and so we have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And so little kids can steal something or say something bad or, or, or do something wrong. And immediately they just are crying and crying and crying. You don't even know why they're crying. And then you find out that, you know, they, they broke something and they, they're just devastated. Their conscience is just so condemning them. They're sweeping and crying. You're trying to comfort the little guy, you know. But it doesn't take long until we start hardening our conscience, huh? And even searing our conscience. We do something horribly wrong, don't feel bad even a little bit about it. That's scary. That's a scary place to get, isn't it? But we've all been there. Unfortunately, you live long enough on this earth, you start to get really crusty. And that's why God said in the days of Noah before the flood, I'm not gonna let man live hundreds of years anymore. Max 120 years, that's that's pushing it. But we see how hard-hearted we get the time we're getting in our 40s. And it seems like our hearts getting even harder in the 50s. And beyond that, I don't know. I'm not 60 for another 14 days. I'll have to let you about know about that. So, the conscience is there, but it's, it's, for us as believers, it's a muscle. And, and as we learn what God loves and then try to love what God loves, our conscience gets strengthened. And then we learn what God hates and the degree God hates it, we can train our conscience to hate that. Because in our sinful condition, we say, God hates that, but my flesh loves that right I mean it's most of those things are like that I mean the first thing I am gonna say to God when I get to heaven is why is everything that's fried and got white dough in it tastes the best the best foods will kill you why why would you do that to us we got so many other problems you know we're gonna go to heaven and a donut's gonna be like eating a salad like, you want all your vitamins, eat that donut. Thank you, God. I love, I love heaven. <laughs> Paul, Paul tells us a number of things about his conscience. Just real quickly in Acts 23.1, Paul look, said, earnestly looking to the council said, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. In Acts 24.16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense, towards God and men. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Here's a verse that really strikes me in Hebrews 13.18. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably when Paul writes Hebrews it sounds like he's struggling in that area or maybe some that were with him were struggling in that area some of his companions and he's like pray for us that we're able to walk in a good conscience because we're not we're struggling with that living this honorable life like we know God desires pray for us Peter makes a very practical reason why we need to have a good conscience In 1 Peter 3.16, he said, Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So when they attack you and start muddying you up, calling you every name in the book, saying you're a hypocrite and you're an adulterer and you're a thief and just trying to make you look like every, you know, a shyster and everybody in the church are a bunch of thieves and shysters, that even though they muddy us up with all these accusations that really are not valid that our conduct in the world and that we've lived in a good conscience we're bulletproof just like Daniel remember those guys tried to say something bad about Daniel and all they could say was well he prays three times a day (laughs) yeah just throw that guy in the lion's den immediately that this is what Peter says, that they're going to, the world, Satan's going to orchestrate it. But after you are muddied and your reputation destroyed, yet you'll come out of that fire, that season where they're trying to destroy you, shining because your conscience has, you were walking according to a good conscience. But there's some who rejected that. So some of these guys that were teaching bad doctrine were also living In a bad conscience. Are we surprised by that? We really aren't, are we? Because a good doctrine will bring about good living. And if you are abiding in the word every day, hiding in your heart, you won't sin against God as you would otherwise. Right? Psalms 119 thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so these guys have again abandoned the word, they've abandoned the truth, they've suffered shipwreck. This was a very common thing in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a lot of shipwrecks. They were right on the ocean. However, let, let me point out something very important. I want to read it out of White's commentary. He says this, we are not justified interpreting suffering shipwreck as though it meant that you were lost beyond hope of recovery. St. Paul himself had suffered shipwreck at least four times, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. When he wrote this epistle, he had on each occasion lost everything except himself. So let's understand that these guys, even though they were being demonically used, they were teaching heresy, they had suffered shipwreck. Remember what we saw earlier in First Timothy. Paul said, I used to be one of those heretics. I used to be one of those blasphemers. I used to be one of those guys that killed Christians for being Christians. But yet, Paul wasn't eternally damned, and nor are these guys. These guys could suffer from shipwreck. Paul had, and no doubt he was referring to this. We all sin, even ministers sin. We do not understand, if we do not, if we do not understand the grace, that devil will come in and condemn us frequently, and we will get discouraged. We must have strong understanding of the grace and the patience of God towards all of his servants. We also don't want to live as hypocrites, acting like we're above sinning or struggling. God's holy and righteous people struggle. Godly, holy, righteous people struggle with sin. Abraham, the father of our faith, the guy had a problem with lying. (laughs) Not once, but twice he said, No, that's not my wife. That's just my sister. (laughs) Noah. Oh, here's a guy. Everybody in the world was wrong but him. That's a pretty powerful statement. And, of course, he ends up going on that ark. Only him and his family were saved. But what's the last thing we hear about Noah? He was laying naked in his tent drunk. It's the last thing we hear about Noah. What, what is God trying to say to us? That even the greatest godly men for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Noah walked righteously. Yet during that whole time, he was just like you and me. He was a weak guy who was struggling with sin. In his case, it was alcoholism that he managed for hundreds of years not to fall into but once the pressure was off and he wasn't being persecuted and he's on the other side and everything's growing nice and green and he gets some vines growing that are great that ah, battles over he himself goes back to being a drunkard Moses a man who was angry in his youth and he was angry years before he died (laughs) he had a struggle with anger David should even mention the numerous amount of sins. Of course, the more well-known one is Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. Peter, the apostle, he was called a hypocrite, pretending to be kosher when the people from Jerusalem passed by, but then would go back and it stumbled the Gentiles, Uh, Peter being such a hypocrite. Yeah, I don't think we should act like we're all beyond this we all can be a hymenus and alexander right we can all be those who suffer shipwreck and probably we all have at some point but he goes on and mentions them in verse 20 of whom are my hymenus and alexander whom i delivered to satan that they may learn not to blaspheme and so he names them by name we learn more about these guys in second timothy 2 17 and 18 uh, mentioning Hymenius here, he says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius, and this time another guy, Philetus, are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection's already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. It's amazing how many weird ideas about the coming of Christ or the rapture coming or not coming. Um, and and people get stumbled by not understanding the truth. And Paul, boy, he he was very dogmatic when it came about um, the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. But whatever they were teaching, it caused people to say, well, why even follow Christ then? It doesn't make sense anymore. And they would walk away from their faith. Uh, There's a guy named Alexander who was a coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4.14 who did Paul much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. So evidently, apparently, the disciples, uh, for their disobedience concerning heresy and in their conduct, or in both. Either they shipwrecked by their bad teaching or by their bad conduct, or both of those things caused them to shipwreck. And Paul wasn't afraid to name them. Matter of fact, in Romans 16, 17, he does the same. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned, and avoid them. Paul says... There's some guys that once they cross a line and and their heresy begins to cause people to walk away from the faith or divide away from the church, then they've crossed the line. And, And wrestling with new ideas or struggling with doctrines, when they start causing the believers to abandon Christ, they're no longer weak or struggling Christians. They are wolves. And so Paul says there that I delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we we see in that phrase, learn not to blaspheme, Paul is saying they're going to go through a season outside of the church and they're going to be targets of the devil. The protection of the church won't be there for them. And why they're not under the protection of God, they're going to get beat up, but they'll hopefully learn that their doctrine was wrong after Satan has, has beaten them up. And so, uh, again, it's not saying that God's abandoning them forever and casting them into hell. He's saying that he's going to separate them from a while. And, of course, the Bible tells us not to judge. But yet in Matthew 7, after it says, don't judge, he then turns around and says, don't give what's holy to dogs. And then in, he goes on to say, beware of false prophets and, 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 and mark them. So we do need to judge. Not judge unto condemnation, but to judge unto discernment. We see another example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. The church was unwilling to judge a guy who had married his stepmother. And all the church was saying, no big deal. And Paul said, no. Cast that guy out unto Satan that his flesh might be destroyed so his soul would be saved. So casting somebody under Satan doesn't mean he's damning them to hell. He's simply saying they need to be out from underneath the protection of God and the church, uh, and and let them see that they want to live in that doctrine, that Satan's doctrine. Let them go live under Satan's domain for a season, and once their flesh gets destroyed, hopefully they'll repent and their soul will be saved. But Paul does, uh, we, we see we see this where Job asked God to allow. Satan asked God to allow Job to be out from underneath that protection. Do you remember that in Job 1? Satan answers the Lord and said does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around him on every side? Let him out from underneath that hedge of protection. Let's see if he's still praising you. And then of course in Luke 22, jesus said simon simon satan asked to sift you a sweet he asked to let my protection over you be pulled away so he could attack peter and see what peter's made of and jesus said no i did not give that approval whatsoever and so the desire here is that they would learn to to not blaspheme and to not have these bad doctrines and uh Boy, in, in the church again, practically, this is where we have to come together. We're two or three agreed upon earth, it will be agreed upon in heaven. Whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. And uh, if that person is offending the body of Christ with their bad doctrine, we would kick them out. We'd confront them. But if they're unwilling to repent, then we as a church say, this person is kicked out. And God says this, Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So if we say that your heresy is such a degree, we're shutting the church door on you, God says, I'll shut the heaven door on them. And until they get things right with the church, I'm not going to open my door to heaven uh, to them. And this is, again, not to be evil to them, not to wrong them, but to discipline them, to wake up, to come back, Uh, to be restored and that that's always to be our heart that was Paul's heart here he wasn't saying Hermes and Alexander hate those guys he's saying I had to turn them over Satan so they'd learn not to blaspheme remember in Galatians 6 Paul says brethren if a man's overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you all be also be tempted And then we need to try. We need to try to reach out to them. Last verse here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 to 26. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patience, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. For that they may come to their senses, escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him, to do his will. Paul here doesn't sound real positive about it. He's like, it's a 50-50 thing. But I, you know, attempt to restore them. Attempt to bring them to a place of repentance. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And and we uh, come to realize that all of us, Lord, need to dust off our swords. And... uh, And to refit our helmets. And to be prepared again. As we're stepping out in this season. To meet outdoors. And preaching your gospel in a park. We know Satan doesn't like that. He thought he had us checkmated. With this coronavirus. And all we've done is gone into the highways and the byways. So Lord put your hedge of protection around us. And if we are to go into battle. Let all of us Lord be ready for it. And not to be surprised when arrows start flying and some of them hit us and that uh, Satan attacks the weakest link to try to weaken all of us. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, wash us. We know that we're the biggest sinners we know and by your grace we stand. Cause us to stand, Lord, and cause us to reach the sphere of our area that, that you've called us to. Open doors to us that no man can shut, and shut doors that no man can open. And we lay it before you in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen.